other sisters and friends, and welcome to You Are the Current Resident Podcast. This is the official podcast of the National Association of Letter Carriers, the union that represents 280,000 active and retired city letter carriers employed by the United States Postal Service. I'm Ed Morgan. We're on Zoom again, and with us as always is our national president, Brian Renfro. Hey, Brian, how are you? Hey, Eddie, I'm doing great today. Um, we're excited to be back on and do something I think a little different today. We got a lot of information to share with our members, so I think this should be a fun episode. Thanksgiving's over now, and we're in the middle of peak season. Just want to remind our members to be safe, um, be careful out there. We know you're busy. We've been through it with you. You know, just take care of yourselves. Yeah, for sure. It's uh, this is the time of year that it kind of seems interestingly to peak season starts or it feels like it starts based on the volume and earlier and earlier every year but we're really getting into the to the meat of it and gets dark earlier weather in some locations gets a little more challenging with the cold and then you add you know the volume on top of that it can create the most challenging time of year for us and uh, I think what you said is very important just remember that the most important thing always is to remain as safe as we possibly can and you know while it's a lot of hard work and it's something that uh is exhausting in many ways by the end of the holiday season for letter cares we uh also take a lot of pride in in serving our customers especially during this time of year so appreciate everything everyone does and uh, as eddie said let's remember that your safety is always a top priority so keep that at top of mind just want to talk about the last episode and your interview with pat Byrne. i mean that was terrific do you just want to talk about pat for a second yeah pat as as our listeners heard and, and if you're listening to this episode and you haven't listened to the one we released over thanksgiving weekend i would strongly encourage you to go back and listen to it pat's a pretty inspirational person and in many ways just an example of what our members do all around the country. You know, we serve our customers and those that have been involved in helping the union and representing letter carriers. Oftentimes, those same people do re pretty remarkable things in their communities. And Pat's, a, uh, I think, a glaring example of that. And he's, I've been friends with Pat for a long, long time. And his story is, is very inspirational. And he's, in many ways, I think exemplifies the spirit that makes not just our union, but all unions successful. And that is that in the end, kind of the core of our motivation for what we do, all of us, regardless of what our responsibilities may be, is to help people. And, uh, you know, Pat has a long career doing that professionally, much of which was to help NALC members and, and now what he's doing. And, and I think the things he shared about you know, that he started to do when he retired and, you know, the tragedy of losing his son and, and how he just utilized that to continue to motivate and even ramp up what he was doing to help the families of those that are struggling with substance abuse and addiction is, to me personally, as I talked about, is inspirational and definitely hits home with me because of my own experience. But, you know, I think we all even if it's those type of challenges are not something that we have experienced, everyone has experienced themselves. Almost everyone, you know, knows someone or has someone close to them that has. So 
and I hope our, our listeners enjoyed listening to that. And, and I hope that it also provides, you know, some level of inspiration. And, uh, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about problems and, and how to fix them. And, and, you know, in a lot of ways, that's the core of what we do as a union. But we also, I think, sometimes have to, it's beneficial to us to step back and, and, you know, see the good that so many people do. And that can help us not just maintain our focus, but, you know, provide motivation on what ultimately is, is what we do as a union is help people. And Pat is definitely a, a strong source of that inspiration for me. And I, I know it will be the same for those that listen to it. So really happy to have had Pat on. And uh, in the future, we've got a lot of members that do things like, like that. So in the future, I'm sure we'll have some others on that uh, periodically we'll be able to highlight that uh, our listeners will enjoy. Yeah, just a great conversation. So when this episode drops, uh, I'll be out at leadership for our week three, our graduation week. It's going to be a great time out there in Lithicum Heights. Uh, We focus on week three on mentoring and strategic planning, kind of taking everything that they learned through all the weeks of leadership and kind of showing them how to put it into action when they get back to their branches. Then after week three and our graduation that we have up there, they'll actually go for and spend a couple days at their business agent's office to see how the business agent's office is run and see how they can connect that from national to the business agent's office to their local branch. That's a really good uh, training. Yeah, it's you and I, Eddie, obviously, both of us being graduates of the Leadership Academy, it holds a special place, you know, in my heart, as I know it does for you. And it's always fun when we just see the classes progress through the entire academy process from week one to two. And this is, you know, as you said, their final classroom week, week three. And and the folks in this class, as with the previous 20-something classes, have really done a good job in in applying themselves and, you know, demonstrating a commitment to learning and, uh, you know, becoming, in the end, better leaders. So, It'll be a lot of fun to have them here. And and so I, of course, want to thank the students that are in his class that uh, we think they're all going to graduate for all their hard work and, you know, trying to maximize the benefit they can get from the class. Um, But I also want to thank the instructors that we have. So for, for those that may not know, at the Leadership Academy, we have a whole lot of people that come out. All the national officers go out and teach. A lot of the headquarters staff teaches different classes. But we have five instructors that are there the whole time. And Eddie is one of those. And so I'm going to start with you. Not only, you know, is Eddie an instructor and he does some teaching and, you know, obviously mentoring people along the way and helping out with whatever, but he also does all the work in putting this together. And it is a lot of work to put together three full weeks of in-person classroom training from the materials, the logistics of scheduling. He deals with, you know, getting the people here and and getting them home and and everything in between. So Eddie, I uh, really, really appreciate, and I know um, even more so than I, are the folks that have going through the class, um, have a deep appreciation for uh, everything that you've done to be sure that 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 academy continues to be a success. And also, um, just want to mention and and thank the other four instructors, facilitators that are out there all the time. And 
they are two retired national business agents, um, Troy Clark, who is the NBA in Region 6, and Chris Wittenberg, who is the NBA in um, Region 7. One current business agent, Keisha Lewis, who is the current business agent out in Region 1. And then also Larissa Pardee, who uh, is a regional administrative assistant in Region 5. I could not be happier. Um, and Eddie, I know you would agree with the, the group that we have out there. There's very dedicated to ensuring that the folks that go through that class get the best possible experience and that they get the best opportunity to learn and develop because ultimately that development will translate into improvements in representation and, and making our union stronger. So appreciate everybody that's involved in that. And it's always fun to have the opportunity to see the people when they're in town. And uh, we're excited about doing that here next week. Well, thanks for the kind words, Brian. You're making me blush over here. You don't look like it, but all right. Yeah. Today, we really have a special episode. Coming off the heels of our, our rap session in New Orleans, we thought we'd bring it to the podcast. So uh, Brian is going to speak and give a sort of a State of the Union address here today. Brian, whenever you're ready, do you want to kick it off? Sure. So as Eddie said, I, I just thought it would be a good idea to, for the sake of time, I mean, the rap session is a three-day event, so I, I am not going to have the time to go through every single thing, you know, that we covered at the wrap session, but I did want to update the, the listeners on a number of different topics that are our priorities uh, in, in several different areas in a, a very similar way to what we did at the wrap session. So it won't be exactly the same, certainly a different format here as opposed to spending an entire weekend. So today we will cover three main areas. One is collective bargaining. Um, one is what we're doing to address the uh, crime that, that our members are unfortunately experiencing at an ever-increasing rate. Um, and then we're going to get into all the activities we have surrounding legislation and politics. So I guess we'll get right into it. The way I want to address collective bargaining here is, of course, update you where we are in the process, what the issues that are still on the table that, that we are still discussing, and then what, what you can expect going forward here in the, in the pretty short-term future. So let's start with a little bit of history just for context with this round of collective bargaining. You know, we opened back in February. We basically have negotiated since that time, and we have made progress towards reaching an agreement. In fact, we have gotten a number of uh, what you call tentative agreements. You don't really have an agreement until you have a full agreement, but we, a lot of the work that's been done um, has resulted in some things that will be definitely positive changes as it relates to work rules and, and things like that. Ultimately, though, the most important thing we negotiate, there's a lot of important stuff, but the most important are the economic pieces of the collective bargaining agreement. These are wages, benefits, the stuff that directly impacts economically our employees, and from the Postal Service's perspective, impacts them economically in terms of the money that they spend. That always is the top priority in any round of negotiation. The main reason for that is that is the reason we all go to work. 
while there are certainly work rules and there are, you know, we have a very, very sophisticated, very detailed collective bargaining agreement. If, if you look around at the collective bargaining agreements that other unions have, almost none of them have the level of detail that we have and cover the very broad range of issues that relate to essentially everything with our wages, the hours we work, and our working conditions. However, the amount we get paid, the benefits that we have, always are the top priority because those are the issues that directly affect our members and their families. They are the reason that we come to work. So we are in a place right now where we have made progress. We are most definitely closer to an agreement in terms of the gap between the things that we think we need to achieve and what the Postal Service is willing to spend, so to speak, but we're not there yet. And so where we are is we have engaged in and are in the process of selecting an arbitrator to chair the panel. Uh, there's a three-person panel on interest arbitration, a neutral arbitrator, an arbitrator representing the union, and an arbitrator that represents management that in an interest arbitration proceeding would hear the evidence, the witnesses, the argument by both sides to support their position, and then ultimately would make a decision on what the terms of the collective borrowing agreement would be. That process, I'm not going to get into the details of exactly how it works, but it is a process where we will agree with the Postal Service, at least historically. We've always done that on who the arbitrator will be. We have not come to a final agreement. So, as I said, we are in the middle of that process, but we do expect here soon, very soon, likely by the time you're listening to this, that we will select an arbitrator. At that point, um, we would ask that arbitrator for availability, and we would schedule our interest arbitration hearings. We will schedule them as soon as we can. I suspect that just based on the timing where we are, the time of year, that more than likely will um, be in early 2024, you know, as we approach the holidays and, and things like that, because we do schedule multiple days, so the, the interest arbitration process is you ensure that, that both the union and the Postal Service have you know, the full opportunity to put on as much evidence and, and argument and testimony as they like. So that will be the next step. Once we schedule, then we will know when the hearings take place, and then we move to what we call our on-the-record proposal as it relates to economics, and, and that, that stuff will be um, publicly available. So, um, you know, I, I have often said I, I don't have any issue whatsoever. In fact, I like to communicate what we are doing in negotiation to our members. I do not communicate what we are doing in negotiation to anyone outside of our members. That can do nothing but harm our collective bargaining efforts. So for that reason, you know, we are a little cautious about information that's going out, as we all know, on the websites and social media these days. Anyone can find literally anything. So we are careful about ensuring that the information that we share with our members Typically, that's through the leadership at the regional level, the, you know, the executive council, the branches, um, so they can communicate it to their members at their meetings and that type of stuff. 
But at the point where we have an on-the-record economic proposal, which we do not do that until we get to interest arbitration, the terms of what our proposal is will be known. However, in the meantime, we and the Postal Service believe that we have an opportunity still to reach an agreement voluntarily through negotiation. So even while we are in the process of selecting an arbitrator, we will then schedule and, and begin interest arbitration proceedings, perhaps finish them, perhaps even get an award. As long as we believe the prospect remains that we can reach an agreement, we will continue to negotiate. So it's not as if we are selecting an arbitrator, so we're going to just end negotiation. We will continue to negotiate. I can tell you that the Postal Service, my counterpart, believes, as I do, that it's still a possibility that we reach an agreement. So um, we will continue to um, do everything, not miss any opportunity, explore every possibility for us to reach an agreement that we believe is fair and represents our members. So as far as I mentioned that economically, we do not have an agreement yet because there remains a gap. And so I, I'm going to get into just a little bit of what the process is like. I, I think that I'm often asked by our members around the country, and I think a lot of people go into or, or, or the kind of default pr thought process of how this works. It's not really exactly how it works. So, you know, very often I think there's a, a thought that what happens is the union walks in and throws down a sheet of paper on the table that says, you know, we propose to get X amount of raise every year and, and do this with the money. And then the post service either says yes or no. And if they say no, we go to interest arbitration. And that's not the way this works at all. Going into any type of bargaining or negotiation, one of the most important elements of preparation is to understand what your counterpart on the other side of the table is seeking to achieve. Now, it's very easy to say, well, who cares what, in our case, the Postal Service, who cares what they want? Well, you better care what they want or else you're not prepared to negotiate. So the Postal Service goes into this as they have in every round of negotiation for a long, long time with an idea in, in their mind based on, you know, the, the factors that influence our bargaining, which I'm going to talk about in just a minute, with an amount that they think that they should have to spend on an agreement. And when I say spend, I mean the cost that would be associated with a collective borrowing agreement over three, four, five, six, whatever the duration of the agreement would be, the costs that are then above and beyond what they currently pay for our craft. So what they pay in city letter care, wages, benefits, that type of stuff. The union, we go in with typically concepts of the things that we believe that we need to achieve. And those are driven by a number of factors, the way we develop them. They are partially, of course, influenced by, you know, what's going on in the larger economy. They're influenced by what we see in, in terms of just wages around us. They, of course, are not just influenced by, but guided by our official bargaining positions that have been uh, adopted by the delegates at uh, our national conventions over the years. And we, of course, communicate with our members very frequently on a daily basis for me. So having a 
very good idea of uh, where there are issues that could potentially be addressed. You put all that together and you develop what you believe could reasonably be achieved through negotiation. And that's where we start. So while I'm not going to get into exactly the numbers, so to speak, because frankly, at this point we have been through, I wouldn't even venture to guess the number of different concepts. There are a couple of things that I will mention and partially just to, you know, for the listener to know the type of things we're looking at, but then also I think to better understand the process of negotiation. It's no secret whatsoever that we have in this round of collective bargaining, one of the central areas of focus for us is to eliminate the two pay table structure that we have and have a single pay table. So we have a table one that was in place until January of 2013 when we got an interest arbitration award that created table two. And table one and table two have some differences. Table one, the starting wage is uh, significantly higher. In table one and two, the top step wage, which is step P currently, are exactly the same. So from a dollar perspective in table one, you have the same number of steps. It takes the same amount of time to get from step A to step P, but you start significantly higher at step A. And table two, step A is lower. But you do get to the same top step pay is between as you have in table one. When you set the actual dollar amounts at each step aside, there are also structural differences between the pay tables. Table one um, has, while it has the same number of steps, it has differing waiting periods between steps. So you have some steps that are 96 weeks, you have some steps that are you know, less than that. So that as you progress through table one, you've got inequitable steps. You also have inequitable or differing increases from step to step. So some steps have a percentage increase that is greater than other steps. So going through that pay scale, and frankly, the, the way table one is structured has caused some issues over the years with Things like pay anomalies, our listeners that have been around a while that have more than likely are, uh, you know, involved in representation, whether they're steward or branch officer, and they've been around a while. will remember pay anomalies. I certainly remember them. I had to deal with them for a number of years. And the last one uh, we resolved through a, an agreement in 2018 that uh, I remember doing that agreement and swore to myself at that time I wouldn't create any pay anomalies in the future. So. But structurally, when you then look at table two, you have the same number of steps. The waiting periods between steps are all the same. It's 46 weeks between every step. The increase in pay from step to step is also the same. You have the exact same increase between step A and B, B and C, and so on. The concept that we have consistently put forward with, of course, you know, at this point, having been through who knows how many different variations, the one thing that's been consistent is that there would be a single pay table. The starting wage at that pay table would be significantly higher than it is in table two, but also that step P or whatever the top step in the pay scale is would also be higher. 
with increases at all points in between. The idea would be that everyone, regardless if they're in table one or table two, would go into this new pay table. That would result, at least in the concepts that we have discussed, in a pay increase just by based on virtue of the way they would slide into the pay scale that would happen before we got to any general increases or cost of living adjustments that you know were included in Article 9 of our collective bargaining agreement. So when you put something like that forward, um, there's a cost associated with it to the Postal Service, and you really, you have to know what it costs them. And we do a lot of work internally, obviously discuss that with them. And then there are things that you can do through negotiation in terms of the structure and the timing of when something happens and how many weeks between steps and waiting periods and percentage increases and all that stuff. The exercise becomes, one, obviously getting the Postal Service to spend the amount of money through a negotiated agreement that we believe gives letter carriers the terms of a CBA that are fair economically and also rewards our members for our contribution to the Postal Service. However, though, there are things we can do with this concept of a pay table that by changing around a lot of the things I just mentioned, you can affect that cost and make it as efficient as you can for the your counterparts across the table while the members still get the same benefit. So that tends to drive the creation of a number of different concepts, let's call them, because we do not do on-the-record economic proposals until we get to the point of, of impasse at, at interest arbitration. So, And the reason for that is is it tends to, by not doing that, it encourages very open negotiation. It you know, allows us to explore every possibility. So we have made progress in terms of that gap being narrowed. We continue to work with them to look at uh, a number of different possibilities, but in the end, a tentative agreement for us from in in an economic sense looks like a new pay table. Everybody goes into that pay table. That pay table has between the pay table and the general increases that would happen in, under Article Nine, the cost of living adjustment. We believe it's time for letter carriers to have a significant increase in pay, and for a number of reasons that I'm not going to get into and describe what our interest arbitration case would be um, on this podcast, but I don't think it's it should be much of a secret to our members. Our job is more difficult than it's ever been. We are, in our view, more valuable to the Postal Service than we've ever been. And of course, when you look at the world around us, wages in this country have risen significantly You know, over the last three or four years. And so that's a positive. And, and we've seen a lot of unions, mostly our brothers and sisters in the private sector, that have had a lot of success in 2023. And, you know, we've definitely stand in solidarity with them. And, um, you know, while some parts of private sector bargaining are uh, comparable to us and other parts maybe not so comparable, generally the success unions are having is is a positive for us. So as far as like the, the where we are in the process in terms of time, I, look, I'm very often asked, why does it take so long? And, and, I completely understand the question because, frankly, I'm not very patient either when it comes to bargaining. But the fact of the matter is, if you look historically at our bargaining, it takes a long time. Even when we have have reached tentative agreements um, like we have in the last two rounds of bargaining that I was you know, very heavily involved in, 
it still takes a while. And if you look at the amount of time that has passed since we opened this time and where we are in the process, um, we are roughly at a similar place, if not ahead, um, than where we've been at during other rounds of bargaining in the past. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, you're, I said we have a very detailed, sophisticated collective bargaining agreement. There's, you know, when you agree on something in principle, um, whatever that change may be, you then have to work out the language. And every word that's written in that document matters. We have to spend a lot of time, not just, you know, thinking internally about what language would look like, but then obviously sitting down with the Postal Service and hashing through literally every word. There are also issues that uh, we are looking to address and the Postal Service is looking to address that are kind of complicated issues. They take a lot of research. They take a lot of exploration. Um, I, I'll just give you one example. I won't get into the, the details of the type of possibilities we're talking about, but our uniform program. You know, the cost of uniforms is just outrageous. It is completely out of control. Letter carriers cannot get the uniforms that we need. The answer, there's multiple ways to address that. One of those is, you know, obviously a allowance increase above and beyond what we've traditionally done. But then there's also, I think, a, a recognition that the program itself needs to be restructured so that in the future, um, potentially we could control some of these cost increases. And when you look back at, you know, since our 2019 agreement, the increases we've had in our uniform allowances have not kept up with the price. There's no way anyone could have known that in 2019. A lot of it's due to just general factors that happened in the world since then. But having some sort of uh, control over the cost would be a great thing for the Postal Service and for us. You know, they it would keep it cost efficient for them or as cost efficient as it could be. And then for letter carriers, allow us to get the stuff we need. But a massive program like that, you know, it, it takes time to really explore and figure out what to do. That's just one example. There's a lot of other issues that are out there on the table. But just to kind of sum up here, I'm often asked, as I said, why it takes so long. I want to be real clear. We could have an agreement right now if we wanted to. That agreement would not be the best agreement that could be achieved for our members. And that is my responsibility. That is the responsibility that the other members of the executive council, the headquarters staff here, all the people that are involved in collective bargaining for us, they take very seriously. And we will achieve the best agreement that we can achieve for our members. And we will achieve that no matter how long it takes. There is no scenario we're making something happen quicker to get less than what we believe we can potentially achieve, there's no scenario in which we go that direction. So we will continue to negotiate as we move into the interest arbitration process. I am still hopeful that we can reach um, a negotiated agreement. My counterparts at the Postal Service are hopeful as well. And we will exhaust, as we have been for months now, every effort to get to a place of agreement. Um, but if we are not able to do that for whatever reason, you know, we will utilize the interest arbitration process in either direction we go. I believe that we can achieve an agreement that is fair to our members, rewards our members for our contribution and our value to the Postal Service. So as we move forward selecting an arbitrator, you know, you likely, those of you listening, will see news about that. And when you see that news, I just caution you, remember 
that doesn't mean we've stopped negotiating. I mean, we're going to continue to try, and hopefully that that gap that kind of remains between, you know, what Postal Service is, is willing to spend and what we need, we're going to keep looking for every possible way to close that gap. Because, you know, while we're not there yet, I, I can – you know, I, I'm certainly not speaking for my counterpart, but I can tell you that that they have a desire, as we have a desire, to reach a a, a voluntary agreement. And you know, we're hopeful that uh, hopeful that we can get there. But you know, again, if we're not able to, then we will utilize the uh, interest arbitration process. So, you know, our talks again remain productive. Our talks, you know, we're always very professional. You know, we have very long standing relationships with uh, the folks that we deal with over there in, in collective bargaining. And it's a matter of we are doing what we can do to get the best agreement we can for our members. And, you know, they do what they can do to represent the interest of the Postal Service. That's kind of the nature of negotiations. We'll keep working at it. Okay, Eddie, where are we going next? So I guess we were going to talk about our Enough is Enough program. Yeah, I know we've talked about this quite a bit uh, on the on the podcast in the past, but I do think it'd be a good idea for me to just kind of summarize what the problem is and and what we're doing to to address that problem. We have seen over the last nice three plus years a dramatic increase in the number of incidents of violent crime against letter carriers since 2020. Over two thousand violent crimes, mostly robberies and assaults have been committed against letter carriers. There are a lot of reasons for this. In many ways during the pandemic, I guess criminals had to get a little more creative and, you know, we saw a an increase in crimes with the mail in general, which, you know, would naturally translate into to crimes against postal employees and, and our members, where a lot of them have developed pretty elaborate check washing schemes and, you know, they're able to fraudulently reproduce checks and, and things like that if they get their hands on them. So this is not true of all the crimes, but the vast majority of them are to gain access to the mail, either by stealing the mail directly, stealing our keys, things like that. So as we dug into this issue, what we did is is just identified pretty early on different areas where we need to make some improvements because there's a reality here. This is not something that's going to be quickly fixed. It's not something that's easy to fix. There's no one thing that can be done to reverse this trend that we've seen. But we have seen some progress, and I'm going to get into to a little bit in each of these areas where we've, we've seen some progress and then what our plans are as we move forward. I do want to say up front that this is an issue where it's not a matter of blame. It just is what it is. Oftentimes when it comes to stuff like this, it's easy, especially if it becomes political and, and what we hear on Capitol Hill from members of depending on which party they're in and and you know that they, they can be politically motivated and want to point fingers and stuff like that. That's not important here. I will tell you that the Postal Service, the Postal Inspection Service, absolutely recognize this is a problem. I can tell you they care about it, and I can tell you that they work and have communicated and are willing to work cooperatively with us to do what we can do to protect our people. 
So this is not a matter of pointing fingers that it's this person's fault or this person's fault or this organization's fault or this. It's about identifying where we need to make improvements and then, you know, working together and utilizing every potential avenue we have to affect those improvements. So let me just go through the the key pieces that we see as elements to the ultimate solution uh, to reverse this trend and, and give our members the opportunity to work more safely. I mentioned criminals stealing, trying to gain access to the mail. That most often is done through our keys and um, postal services in the midst or the early stages, I guess, of replacing our current airlock key system with technology. There's a lot of different possibilities, but they've done multiple tests that we've been involved in testing different types of technology, key fobs, things like that, that are more secure. They devalue the key so that if someone got their hands on it, it would not you know, allow them to access as much as maybe they can currently access. Post Service is publicly committed to a pretty sizable replacement. Uh, I can tell you they're going to replace them all. And there's a legislative component to this that I'll get into here at the end. So this is not something that's going to solve the problem on its own, but it is a piece of the solution. The next one, and perhaps the most important one, at least in my personal opinion, is we have to increase the prosecution rates. When these crimes happen, they are federal crimes. The United States Attorney's offices should be prosecuting every single one of them to the fullest extent of the law. That's not happening. We have, however, seen some improvement. We've seen there's 93 United States attorney's offices around the country. Um, one place that, or one, I guess, cause of some of the improvement is that the Postal Service themselves have invested in funding a dozen or so prosecutors that spend the vast majority of their time prosecuting these cases. So we commend them for that. And, uh, you know, I have discussed this with them at length and, of course, expressed our appreciation. And, and that's made some difference, but you know we've still got a long way to go. Additionally, through what we are doing um, that I'm going to get into detail on in just a second, to raise public awareness around the country, I think has also caused many of these United States attorney's offices to begin to prioritize these cases against postal employees, or at least move them up uh, on their pecking order of, of priorities. Um, many times you can tell what they prioritize if they have a press conference about it. So they are beginning to have press conferences and uh, that type thing. So th that's a good thing. And the third really big piece is just increasing public awareness here. And we've done a lot of media stuff. I know I've talked to, I don't know how many um, reporters through all different types of media outlets about the issue. We have held these rallies slash media events that we branded as enough is enough events. We've had them in Chicago, Cincinnati, Oakland, the Denver area, Houston, San Francisco, Detroit. We've got another one, probably just had it actually as you're listening to this, but uh, in out in Phoenix, Arizona this week, we will continue to do those. And we get local media out to cover them. It lets the people in the community know what's going on. A lot of people know, a lot of people don't know, which has a benefit, of course, you know, not just in asking them to simply 
keep an eye out for us where they can, just as we've always kept an eye out for them as we serve our customers. But public awareness and public pressure and outcry influences a lot of things, including prosecutions, um, like it or not. So uh, we're going to continue to do everything we can to, to get the word out. The last piece I'm going to mention with this before we move on is we have a piece of legislation being drafted that is going to address a number of different things. And a great friend of letter carriers, uh, Eddie, from kind of your neck of the woods, Congressman Brian Fitzpatrick, uh, he's a Republican from Pennsylvania, kind of the outside Philadelphia in the Philly metro area. He has a law enforcement background, was an FBI agent before he was a member. He's also an attorney. So he did some prosecution back then. And, you know, we talked about, I was really curious what, you know, he thought from just a law enforcement perspective um, we could do and and conversation ended up in drafting a bill so that legislation we're hopeful will be introduced by the end of this calendar year if it's not by the end of this calendar year we definitely think it'll be very early in january um as i said he's a republican he's drafting the bill the um however it will definitely be a bipartisan piece of legislation when it's introduced and it's going to do a number of things. It'll address the airlock key replacement, beef up the prosecution in these attorneys' offices, potentially look at the sentencing guidelines for these crimes, um, ensure that the inspection service has the resources they need to not just investigate these, but provide a level of protection and, and prevention up front. There's a number of things that uh, in those general categories I talked about that legislatively could go a long way. Isn't it something as simple as basically directing the Department of Justice to prioritize these crimes? So we're excited about getting that done. And once that legislation is introduced, I want to be real clear about this. That will become our number one legislative priority. It is, first and foremost, the most urgent legislative priority. Secondly, it is likely of our priority legislation, the one that we will have the best opportunity to potentially get passed in this Congress. So when that bill is introduced, we will likely have a number of activities around the country to quickly build support for it, and we will prioritize it. But in the end, what we have to achieve here is making a reality the mindset that our listeners that have been letter carriers for some time will remember existed around the country for the longest time. And that mindset was, if you mess with a letter carrier, you're going to go to jail. That's a federal employee. We've got to make that a reality. And uh, I really believe that through all the efforts that we're currently engaged in on the Capitol Hill, certainly with the Postal Service and with the Inspection Service and public awareness and the media, and that we've got a real opportunity here to make a difference. All right, Eddie, what's next? So, yeah, I guess we'll get into the other pieces of our legislative agenda next. Yeah, so we have always had legislative and political priorities, and I know maybe some of our listeners that are newer members, they may have questions about why do we even have to do this. So let me start there. The Congress, the White House, has a significant amount of influence over what happens with the Postal Service, thus our jobs. The law in the United States is the reason that we, as a union, have the right to collectively bargain over everything that we're able to bargain over. So, you know, there's a number of topics that I want to get into a little bit. 
starting with the White House, and then we'll talk about some of our priority legislation. But it is an area where we have to engage, and we have to work to ensure that the Postal Service is sustainable financially long-term. That's very important for our jobs, and not that we only care about our jobs. We certainly also care about serving the people of America and ensuring that the service stays around for a long time in the future. But Postal Service finances are a big piece of it, and then obviously protecting the benefits that are afforded to us as federal employees, protecting our right to collectively bargain. Those are constant priorities that we have when it comes to the Congress. But let me start with the White House. And while this administration under President Biden has no question been as pro-union and pro-labor as any administration, maybe even more so, frankly, than any administration, at least in modern times, for sure. There are still things we need from this administration, and there's one in particular. So the Postal Service, as I mentioned, their long-term financial sustainability, and we viewed this a few years ago as can kind of picture it as a three-legged stool, that there were three actions that were needed reform-wise to put them on a really, really good financial path, which, again, secures our jobs. Collective bargaining, for example, it's a lot better to bargain with someone that's not broke. The first of those was the Postal Service Reform Act of 2021, which was signed into law in 2022. We talked about that a lot a couple of weeks ago in the episode on the health benefit plan when Director of Health Benefits Stephanie Stewart was with us, but it repealed a mandate from 2006. It cost the Postal Service billions of dollars a year. That was a mandate to pre-fund health benefits for postal retirees, some of them not even born yet. So that was one big step forward. The second leg of that stool, so to speak, is something that the White House could administratively instruct the Office of Personnel Management to do regarding the Postal Service's finances. So the Office of Personnel Management, or OPM, they have a lot of functions as it relates to federal employees and government agencies. One of them is that is where our retirement money is. So as we work throughout our careers, you know, the employee, we pay a very minimal amount into our retirement. The Postal Service pays a significant amount in and OPM kind of collects all that money. So any of you retirees that are listening, you know, when you retire, you deal with OPM and then that's where your check comes from every month. The problem that needs to be addressed is that the accounting methods that the Office of Personnel Management used to evaluate the Postal Service's civil service pension fund, their pension assets, the amount of money that they have is flawed in our view. The Postal Regulatory Commission, which is the regulatory agency that uh, is responsible for a lot of things related to postal regulation, back in 2011, 2012, they hired a firm called Siegel to do a study and a report on that valuation method that OPM uses. That report, in a nutshell, said if OPM used standard private sector accounting practices, we're not talking about cooking any books. We're not talking about doing anything other than what almost any finance professional in the United States would do if they were given the opportunity to do this accounting. If those valuation methods were used, the Postal Service's Civil Service Retirement Fund 
would be overfunded by tens of billions of dollars. So why is that important? It's important because by law, when the Postal Service's retirement accounts are overfunded, periodically there is an amount of money, an amount of that overfunding that is transferred into something called the Retiree Health Benefit Trust. So I mentioned that the mandate to prefund health benefits for future retirees is gone, but the Postal Service has already set aside $50 billion for benefits for future retirees. But they still, every year, when it comes to paying retiree benefits, they are paying something in the neighborhood of two, two and a half billion dollars a year. Once this money began to be transferred into that fund, the Postal Service would then experience a net cash increase because they would not have to be paying into the Retiree Health Benefit Trust. The money would just be transferred from the civil service account that they've already paid into. So the bottom line is that if this recalculation was done, that transfer began, long term, the Postal Service would experience a cash, quote, infusion, so to speak, money they already have, but money they would not have to spend on retiree health benefits. They could redirect it to other places, such as, you know, wages and benefits and things that come from our collective bargaining to benefit our employees, infrastructure investments, modernization, all kinds of things. Long term, that would be a big, big piece of their financial sustainability long term. We continue to work with the White House. They have indicated support for this concept for a long time, and we, again, communicate with them constantly. We are always doing what we can do to further educate those that have influence on making this happen. And we are still optimistic that this definitely could be something that the White House does here in the hopefully reasonably near future. From a timing perspective, it's kind of important that it happens here soon. And by soon, I mean 2024. Because the initial transfer of that money that I just talked about would happen in 2025. So while that the exact timing of it may not affect the 50-year outlook, for the immediate future, beginning it in 2025 would be really positive. So we'll continue to communicate with them on that front. I mentioned the Postal Service Reform Act and the changes that it made. I am on this particular episode not going to dig into deep detail about that Reform Act, but it did make significant changes to our health benefits and the way our health benefits interacts with Medicare. A couple of things, though, that I want to mention. Obviously, you can go back and listen to the podcast that we've done two episodes now, one with Stephanie Stewart, our health benefit director, a couple of weeks ago, and then one several months ago where I went in detail about the changes that'll be coming. There is one thing in particular I want to mention for our retirees that may be listening. Part of the changes in this law required in 2024 that the plans utilize something, a component of Medicare called an employer group waiver plan that affects prescription drug coverage. This is something that the Bush administration in the mid-2000s exempted the plans that covered postal employees from, would not allow access to it. In a nutshell, it's a prescription drug plan that allows lower drug prices. However, at our NALC health benefit plan, we decided to go ahead and provide that as a benefit in 2024. So if you're somebody out there that is listening and you have Medicare, you have the NELC plan, you can read all about that. If you go look in your December 2023 poster record, which you'll get here in a a week or two, hopefully, it'll be up on the website, I guess, the beginning of December, I guess roughly around the time 
people are listening to this podcast, but Stephanie Stewart, your health benefit director, her article in that December issue is all about what that new Medicare Part D prescription drug coverage looks at. One last plug for the health plan. If you're listening to this and you're not a member of the NALC health benefit plan, please take a look at it. It's going to be the best plan for the best value. I feel very, very confident in saying that. All right, let me touch on our legislative priorities in Congress, and there's a handful that I'll cover. I mentioned earlier in the episode about the crime bill that we are working on with Congressman Fitzpatrick, and again, it'll be a bipartisan piece of legislation that will most definitely, once again, become our top priority once it's introduced. However, it's not our only priority. There are just a couple more I want to mention. One is the Social Security Fairness Act, and this would repeal, I guess, a provision that's been in effect for 40 years or so now. Two, actually, one called the windfall elimination provision, one called the government pension offset. And in a nutshell, the current law, those two provisions, when a civil service retiree which many letter cares are, those that started before 1984, they do not pay into Social Security while they are are working as a civil servant under the civil service retirement system. If they then, either prior to that employment or after that employment, they do work somewhere where they pay into Social Security and they you know earn enough quarters to earn Social Security benefits, these two provisions reduce their Social Security based solely on the fact that they're a civil service retiree, which is grossly unfair. But it's been the case, you know, like I said, since the early 1980s, so 40 years now. We have a bill in the House to repeal those provisions. It's called the Social Security Fairness Act. It's H.R. 82. That was introduced by Congressman Garrett Graves, a Republican from Louisiana, and Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger, a Democrat from Virginia. Uh, it has 300 co-sponsors, so a 201 Democrats and 99 Republicans. A bipartisan majority of the House of Representatives has, quote, co-sponsored or, or supported that bill. The Senate counterpart, the same bill in the Senate, is S-597, and it has 49 co-sponsors. So what this needs to pass is you've got to get it to the floor in the House of Representatives, and that is where we are currently working. One positive is that the Speaker of the House Mike Johnson, also from Louisiana, is a co-sponsor of the bill. So we will continue to work and try to get that thing to the House floor for a vote. The other piece, or the second one I want to mention, is the Federal Retirement Fairness Act. This is a bill that would allow former non-career federal employees, including letter carriers, that have served as a non-career employee at any point after December 31st, 1988. So for us, this would affect Anyone that was a CCA, a TE, even a casual, since December 31st, 1988. This would allow them to buy back or, or make deposit on their time as a non-career employee and have that creditable for retirement purposes. So if you're listening to this and you served two years as a CCA, then you converted a career. What this bill would do is allow you to make deposit to pay your retirement contributions for that two years. Obviously, the Postal Service would do the same if you chose to do that and have those two years credited to your service for, for your retirement. That bill has not yet been introduced in the Senate. We've got a more than likely it'll be a bipartisan bill. We've got a really good idea of a Republican and a Democratic senator that'll introduce it there, but that hasn't quite happened yet. 
The other one I want to mention is a bill that has to do with expanding access for our members that are injured on the job to care. The only, to be honest, the only major issue we have right now when it comes to OWCP and helping our injured workers is in places we do not have access to the number of doctors that we would like. And there's a variety of reasons for that. But this bill is called Improving Access to Workers' Compensation for Injured Federal Workers Act. It's a really long name. It's H.R. 618. And what this bill would do is allow physicians' assistants and nurse practitioners to treat injured federal employees. And, you know, as a lot of you know that are listening, if you go to the doctor, you know, with common cold or, you know, any minor, I guess, comparatively speaking, minor, you know, illness, it's becoming more and more common for physicians, assistants, nurse practitioners to provide that treatment. So healthcare in general is embracing, utilizing those people to provide care, and this bill would allow them to provide care and it be compensable under the Federal Employees Compensation Act. The last thing I want to talk about related to legislation and politics is the Letter Care Political Fund. I would suspect a lot of people listening are Letter Care Political Fund contributors, and we very much appreciate you doing that. But ultimately, what this is, is PAC money. It's a political action committee that we use to support candidates that support letter cares. And when you look at campaign finance in this country, I'm sure a lot of you share my opinion that it's pretty disgusting, but it's also the way things work. And, you know, our jobs as union representatives are to achieve what's best for the members of NALC. And regardless of how we like the game of campaign finance, we play the game because not playing the game will result in losing. And we are not into losing. We're into winning for letter carriers. So our PAC, though, compared to a lot of the things that we see with some of the large super PACs that billionaires and these big corporations fund, our PAC is really righteous in a lot of ways and also emblematic of the spirit of solidarity that makes unions strong. Our PAC takes a little bit of money from a whole lot of people, all of our members, to build a collective influence. And we already, I guess a good term would be punch above our weight. So we have a pretty large pack. Our members are very active. We've got a lot of people that contribute. And that's honestly been one of the main reasons that we've been able to achieve things like this Postal Reform Act to improve the Postal Service's financial situation. But there are other things we need to achieve, as we just talked about, with some of that legislation. And the fact is, that, you know, our members, I believe, and there's a lot of evidence of this, that once they are educated on what that letter care political fund does and how easy it is, they choose to do the right thing. And the fact is our PAC is bipartisan. If you want your money to go to a conservative Republican member of Congress, it will. If you want your money to go to a liberal Democratic member of Congress, it will. We have multiple Congresses supported the most liberal and the most conservative member of Congress. What we care about is where they stand on our issues. Our issues really should not be partisan issues. And we expend a lot of energy and a lot of resources, a lot of time building relationships with members of both parties. And a lot of that is fueled by the Letter Care Political Fund. So there's a lot of information on our website about it. It's pretty easy to sign up. And we have a whole group of people that uh, Letter Cares that work full-time for us. And this is one of their main areas of responsibility. So go to NALC.org. Maybe we can get our producers here to put 
a link or something in the notes for this podcast this week. So scroll down and check that out. But it's really the easiest thing that anybody can do to protect their job is make a small donation every pay period to the Lettercare Political Fund and, you know, know that that money is spent based solely on what's best for our members. We don't venture into other areas. We focus on what they do as it affects our jobs. And, you know, for most people, our jobs are, if not our top priority, very, very high on our priority list because they are what we depend on to support our families and our retirement. So there's, again, a wealth of information, not just about the PAC, but about any type of legislative political happenings that are going on there on our website. So if you would check that out. Ed, I think that's enough for today, but we've got a lot more, I'm sure, for our next episode. So yes, make sure you share this with your friends and make sure you're here next week for part two. I think it's going to be a really good episode for everyone to listen to. Yeah, we got some more stuff too. So look forward to sharing more. So in lieu of our Ask the Mailbag, I'm going to give you guys a little bit of homework. If there was any questions that you had about part one of the rap session, I want you to reach out to your local leadership. Ask those people those questions, because sometimes, you know, again, in a public setting like this, we're not going to share everything. President Renfro isn't going to share everything, but, you know, member to member, you can get some more information. Yeah. You know, any member should feel free to to reach out. You know, obviously your local branches, the place to start, your national business agents are, are also there. So feel free to, to reach out. The only dumb question is the one not asked. So as Ed said, I never have a problem answering a question, nor will any of our other leadership answering a question from a member. But, you know, we obviously are cautious about answering and putting information out to those that don't have any business knowing and their knowledge can only harm us. So absolutely, if you've got any questions about any of that stuff, reach out and I can promise you we'll get an answer to you wherever that needs to come from and whatever level or whether that's your local branch or, you know, if they need to reach out to your NBA office, I'm sure they'll know to do that. And of course, the NBA office, if they need to reach out to us here at headquarters, then they do that as well. And I just want to thank you, Brian, for taking the time today and really filling in the members. I know they're going to appreciate this episode. Sure. Absolutely. It's fun. And I want to thank you all for listening to this episode of You Are the Current Resident Podcast. Please subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. And please share the podcast with our NALC brothers and sisters. You can follow the NALC on social media on Facebook, X, Instagram, and Threads. You can find links to our accounts in the episode description, and you can follow President Renfro on Twitter at BrianRenfro19. If you have any questions to submit or have feedback about this podcast, again, please email us at social at NALC.org. May your steward be by your side, and may your union have your back. Thanks for listening. See you next week. <music>